you do it Doing the best you can Are you doing Are you doing the best you can Welcome, all you citizens of the world. It's time for another edition of the Live from the Heartland show. I'm Michael James, and while I'm usually in Chicago, today I'm in El Paso on the, actually the 12th of August. Uh, we're recording for the show Live from the Heartland on the 13th, for the week of the 13th of August. And I'm here with Emilio Davis, who is back in Chicago, the engineer. Um, we, uh, we have a couple of Three wonderful guests today. We're going to talk with our, our good friend Bob Lawson, getting a good labor report on what's going on around the country in the labor world and the workers' world. And we, uh, a little earlier this week, we had a nice conversation with uh, longtime activists Dee Gordon and Jane Adams, who are in Carbondale, Illinois, talking about being surrounded by uh, red states and what they're doing around abortion, et cetera. Um, Let's give you a little bit of good news. Uh, let me just say we are uh, recording this for broadcast on WLUW 88.7. That is our home base. And we are really glad that we are part of the overall WLUW team. Uh, some good news and other people put this in. In San Francisco, there's a move to end all prosecution of psychedelic drug use. Um, City resources not to be used for any investigation, detention, arrest, or prosecution related to the use of um, as a bunch of uh, controlled substances from the federal list. Uh, some bad news. Uh, well, it's bad news for Trump. Uh, Garland uh, uh, and the FBI have uh, raided the Trump compound down there in Florida uh, after trying to uh, reach him less obtrusively. Uh, regarding apparently over some highly classified U.S. programs relating to nuclear power. Uh, a little bit more bad news, the monkeypox vax is in high demand, but in low supply. Cities need federal funding. And just coming over the wires is uh, polio is reported in New York City wastewater, uh, indicating that the disease is spreading among the unvaxxed. Get the vaxxes. Some real sad news on the memoriam front. Uh, I just learned that our friend Gloria McCartney, a wonderful person and a great yoga instructor, has passed on to revolutionary uh, blissed out heaven. Uh, she was a wonderful woman, and I'm really sorry to get that news. Um, more bad news, uh, and you can get all kind of information on this. Uh, the Arctic is melting faster than originally thought. Now, a little good news. Um, Newsweek reports. Uh, that Democrats currently appear to be well positioned to maintain their narrow control of the Senate, even potentially expanding it. Um, recent surveys show that the party is favored to win in Pennsylvania and Ohio. That's good news. First time I've heard people talking about Ohio and two other races in Wisconsin and North Carolina. They appear to be neck and neck. Uh, and a new poll, one of a number, but the one shows that in Florida, the race is tied. Uh, on the labor front, and we're gonna get a, a full labor report from Bob Lawson, but I do have information here that Hyundai, Hyundai, however you say that correctly, 
subsidiary Smart was found to be using child labor in a plant near Montgomery, Alabama. On the gun front, uh, and we are here in El Paso, uh, Beto O'Rourke, who is running for governor, uh, took on a heckling mope who attended his press conference. And Beto stated that weapons used in the Uvalde shooting are meant for war, not for personal possession. Uh, let me just say that uh, I'm in, in El Paso for Bobby Bird's memorial. Bobby Bird is that fellow uh, right behind me. And here is a book of Bobby's from Cinco Puntos Press. He was known as the Border Bard and uh, a wonderful poet and a great publisher along with Lee Bird. And uh, I came down and uh, my friend Steve Yellen uh, from whom some of you may remember him from a few weeks back talking on basketball in the barrio. Uh, we went over to Juarez and we had an errand to run. And on the way, we had stopped at the Walmart where uh, I think it's in 2019, uh, 22, now 25 people died when a shooter came on the scene uh, and uh, slaughtered a whole lot of people. Uh, we were in the Walmart. We both had on our Beto T-shirts and uh People loved it. We were in the restaurant and uh, talking with people and getting pictures taken with them. Uh, the key is turning out people in your hometown. And I hope Beto is working hard on that. I'll know more in a few days. Uh, and uh, people seem to be really positive about his campaign and their indications that it's going well. A little bit on the sports front. Um, sorry to see, but glad for her and whatever she does. Serena Williams has announced that she's beginning her retirement and we'll see how she does in her last matches. She's been a wonderful uh, example and a great athlete. Uh, we wish her well. And I got a report from the New York Times that the Women's National Basketball League uh, is losing two greats, but only one is missed. I'll read you this. You've probably heard that Sue Bird is retiring at the end of this season. But what, what about Sylvia... Fowles, F-O-W-L-E-S. Fowles has won four Olympic gold medals, two WNBA titles, and one league MVP award. Her coach describes her as the best all-time classic center in the history of our league. But only avid followers of the women's game would know this. Why? Her close friend Bird says that her own fame has a lot to do with being white small and therefore not intimidating compared to Syl, who is black, dark skinned and of a certain stature. Okay, well, we wish them both well and we know a lot more about both of them now. Um, let me see, the couple things are coming up in Chicago uh, uh, tomorrow, or that would be Sunday, actually the 14th, uh, Chicago River Float Celebration. 500 lucky participants have signed up. That's the max to float down the river, uh, the Chicago River in their inflatables uh, this Sunday the 14th. It'll be followed by a celebration, uh, an invitation to river activism at Clark Park 3400 North Rockwell, organized by Friends of the River. And also on Saturday the 13th is the Bud Billiken Parade, uh, starting at King Drive and Oakwood. Um, and let me see what else I got. I think that's probably gonna be it for my opening banter. Uh, gives us a little room. And uh, we're gonna go out with a little bit of song here and we'll be right back with our friend Bob Lawson. So stay tuned here to WLUW 88.7 here on the left end of your dial. And if you miss the show on Saturday, 
It's on Tuesdays and Fridays at nine, at nine o'clock on WLUW. You can get it on youtube.com slash heartlandmedia slash videos anytime, as well as Spotify and Google Podcasts. And you can find it on Can TV. So we'll be right back. This is Michael James in El Paso with Live from the Heartland. Welcome back to another edition of the Live from the Heartland. We are recording on the, uh, what is today, the 10th of August. It's a Wednesday, and I'm really honored to bring on the Live from the Heartland show a couple of old pals. And when I say old, I mean it's a long time since I've seen them. I've known them a long time, and we are all aging. And we will talk about that a little bit at the end of the interview. Um, right now, let me introduce... Jane Adams and Dee Gorton. And they're a couple of comrades, <clears throat> friends from the SDS, Students for Democratic Society. Dee worked also with Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, Jane was the National Secretary of Students for Democratic Society. Uh, and I think the last time we all saw each other was in uh, 1988 in Poughkeepsie, New York at a Quaker camp at an SDS reunion. Right, right. Um, so how are you two guys doing? <laughs> well, a lot of things have happened since then. <laughs> so Jane and I have gotten together. Jane and I were, uh, I could tell a funny story about, about Jane and me at the at the SDS back in the day in 65. But we've been together now about 25, 26 years. We live in Southern Illinois in Carbondale, which is, uh, I don't know if you can hear me now. I've got a tree, tree getting cut out, out here, but if you can hear me. Uh, Southern Illinois, Carbondale, is about as close to Jackson, Mississippi, as it is to Chicago. It's also the town where the Illinois Central Railroad came through and where the, um, what do you call them, the, the trains were stopped and the Jim Crow car was put on here in Carbondale for people to go down south when they went across the border uh, to uh, Kentucky. And what's important about that is that it seems like this place, Carbondale, Southern Illinois, 
which is surrounded by extraordinary, you know, gardens and trees and rocks. And it's just beautiful place in Illinois. It's hard to believe it's here has always been somehow the point where things happened outside of Illinois. So that you changed, changed your trains here going south to get on the uh, Jim Crow car. Coming north, you got off the Jim Crow car. Now we're surrounded way deep inside of, of red country uh, with Missouri on one side, Kentucky below us, and uh, Indiana on the other. And we're finding that we're once again some kind of a refuge uh, where they're now people are women's health care clinics are taking a look at this area to open up to for women to be able to come here from areas they can't uh, get the health care they want. Uh, the same thing's true with cannabis. You know, we have cannabis here. It's uh, you have it in Chicago, of course, but uh, we have people who actually come here, you know, and, and, and that's why they, they want to be here and have that part of their vacation. But that's where we live, uh, Southern Illinois, Southern Illinois, Southern Illinois University. It was where Jane was a professor. Well, I'll tell you, it's it's really unique because that's been true for Carbondale since the fifties or the forties, when we had a president who came in. the The college itself goes back to the eighteen seventies but it was one of the first normal schools in Illinois. But uh, this man, Delight Morris, really built the place. And in the, in the 70s, it was, well, in the 50s, it was one of the first white, uh, pre predominantly white universities to have a large black population. And so we had some very famous people like Dick Gregory come out of here. And uh, and I know a lot of those folks are up in Chicago now or the children of those folks are up in Chicago. And it created this stream of people who of legacies, black legacies who came down here, who come down here to the college. So it gives it a special kind of a flavor, um, that linkage up to Chicago. And then it there was a huge counterculture here with lots of bluegrass and lots of grass. And uh, and other other uh, substances that we put in our bodies back in the day, and I guess a lot of people still do. But <laughs> and so uh, yeah, I'm from here. This is this is where I grew up, around here, about 20 miles from here, and went to the university school. Uh, so I was in the SDS chapter here in Carbondale back in the anti-war in the after I came up from Mississippi. So. Um, it's, it's a it's a really it really is a beautiful area down here and uh, we're surrounded politically we're surrounded by um, Republican has become heavily Republican it was heavily Democratic mostly because of long union tradition in the coal mines but uh, over the years uh, partly because of uh, Big Jim Thompson and his patronage machine. Some of the people who had been previously Democrats became Republicans. And then because of the changing politics in the country at large and the decline of coal, um, it's become um, pretty much Republican. But um, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting area politically that way. Hey, hey, I don't know if you want to go into that, but. Well, I would, uh, weren't you uh, uh, on the city council in Carbondale? Didn't you do a little politics for a while? 
Yes, after I retired from SIU back in 2010 was when I retired in 2011, I was elected to city council and I served on that. And then I ran for mayor and I ran up against the slum wards. And um, uh, no, I'm afraid they didn't like me very much. And so they recruited somebody who was more to their liking. I'm not sure they like what he's done, but um, anyway, I sort of got my head handed to me. But then I went and um, decided I'd do hyper-local and I started uh, an organization that created a dog park that just opened this year and two and a half acres and it's great and everybody loves it. And I, I got elected to the park district board along with one of my other board members of our dog park group. So I'm now working on getting great parks in Carbondale, parks and recreation. Mike, one thing I want to mention is that uh, because of the latest crisis, because of Dobbs' decisions on abortion, <clears throat> there's a real question about whether or not all of these states are going to completely limit it or sort of limit. Who knows what's going to happen? So what we've had happen here in Carbondale is we have two clinics that are moving that are moving in here. And we offered up one of, we have been building houses and working on houses here for quite some time. We've moved in with, we offered them a safe house, a place that we felt would be very comfortable, but at the same time, very safe for them to be able to do their, to, to live in. Uh, it's the place for home because you know, the work is difficult. It's emotional. Uh, and you need a good place to live. So Jane and I have done that. We're finishing it and we're going to turn it over in about two weeks uh, to the directors of one of the clinics here. And so we're pleased to do that. But there's going to be a lot more, I think, that we'll be able to do around here. There's some question whether or not we're going to get a lot of pushback locally. It, it could be. And we want to be able to help with that as well. But by and large, we think it's going to go well, that it's going to be our safe refuge again. Uh, for, for women in this case, then it's uh, like it was in many years for the black, for black population. So we are trying to work on that right now. Now, we had quite a few people over the last couple of years relocating here during COVID, uh, both from Chicago, but we've had them from there. We sold a house to a fellow from Phoenix. Uh, there are people, we had a number of houses that we've re rebuilt here. But we've had a, quite a few people who've come in here and mainly because I really think it's that it's the forest, it's the outdoors, it's the ability to live in a beautiful place. But also, regardless of your orientation, you know, you don't get picked on. It's a place where you can be, kind of be yourself, I think. It's true. It's been true with us. And so I'm sure a lot of other people as well. Let me ask either of you, uh, what kind of, uh, what what's the uh, sense of the student body? Uh, have they gotten more progressive, more active? Uh, does the uh, Kansas vote last week, uh, is that a indicator of good things to come? If I'm wondering if you see that, if you have any experience with that. Well, I think the, that, I mean, I'm, I'm not that in touch anymore with the students because no. I've been retired for 12 years. But um, the what I've seen of the young people is that uh, their core concerns are too, about sexualities, gender identities, you know, those sorts of things. And then about the environment. Now we bring a lot of people get attracted to SIU because it has such a big environmental focus and because of the, the Shawnee forest, which is so diverse. 
And, um, you know, so they come down here if they're from urban areas because they want that. And that's what they're concerned about. And so there's a lot of focus around environmental climate change issues, all of those kinds of things. And I've seen some young people show up at city council meetings, just really, you know, that's what they are. That's what gets their soul. And I can, you know, I can sympathize with them (laughs) because we're we're, we're also feeling our age now. And Jane, you're 79. Yeah. Yep. I'm 80. And uh, so we, we're at the point where we got to be awfully careful that we don't kind of lose contact completely with that with those folks, that, that we misinterpret uh, what they're thinking, what they're doing. I think that we have a lot of danger that we knew that happened to us in the 60s, where there were people who said, I don't know what in the world these guys are up to. Uh, and they didn't. And they were a lot older. We've tried to stay in touch, but be honest with you, we're getting old. And we are getting out of touch. Well, I think that one of the things that you we talked about before we started the interview was talking about old age and the end of life. But I'm right. going to save that for another time. Both of you were, uh, you know, very active in the movement in the 60s and the 70s. Jane, as I said at the outset, was the uh, National Secretary of Students for Democratic Society in its heyday. Uh, Dee worked closely with SNCC and went on to become quite a photographer, uh, selling pictures to big name newspapers, et cetera. Why don't you share with us, Dee, a little bit about uh, your photos and the book White South that you've been working on, Right, photos you took about 50 years ago. That's right. Uh, Well, I I went on with a career, actually, to the New York Times. I was a White House photographer for the New York Times. I wish you were in there now. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, <laughs> who knows? I used to wonder how I got in the door. You know, I, I guess you look at the Secret Service, said, you guys know who I am, and they let me in anyhow. So <laughs> I guess it was okay. But no, the book that we're working on now, I took photographs 50 years ago, uh, right at the moment where white supremacy, legal white supremacy uh, was collapsing. That's the winter of 1969 and 70. And when I say collapsing, it really means the schools and, 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 and legal segregation was being, was being ushered out over that winter. And I did not know, of course, that was what was going to happen. Because Mike, just like you, we did not know the outcome of what we were doing. We didn't have any idea. So I thought we'd have socialism by now. Socialized right. medicine. Right. <laughs> the millennium would have arrived. But anybody, anybody should know that you never know what the outcome is going to be, and you do the best you can. So I made those photographs right at that moment that people who had always, white people who had always lived in segregation, were now that world was changing. And so I photographed George Wallace, and I photographed a lot of, but I photographed young people, I was very curious about codes, how black people, and you look at some of my photographs, they're amazing when you see the kind of coding, black folks with their hands in their pockets and you know, being very meek around white people. Something that you, I don't think, would see again, perhaps. Well, not in Chicago. Uh, not anywhere, for that matter. I mean, a, a, new world is, a new world is here. But the pictures are being collected, about 100 of them is being published, we hope. It's been, it's been quite an effort to get this done. Uh, being published this year. Uh, the only the only stumbling block I'm having is that my publisher thinks they're fine art. And I said, no, 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 they're not fine art. They're just documents, you know, they're just they're just photographs. 
So if someone thinks they look good, that's great. But the main reason was to document a moment in American history, just a, that critical moment that was so important to me. I grew up in Mississippi. I grew up in cotton country. I was from the Delta of Mississippi. And I was what I guess they call nowadays a very privileged guy in living down there. I, when I went to college, I, I pledged Kappa Alpha Order, which is a fraternity that was founded by Robert E. Lee. So that's where I came from. And then from there, within five or six years after SDS and so forth in SNCC, I went back down there to photograph that world with all that knowledge in my head. And people like Jane, my, my present wife, who were then creating something we call women's liberation. And we're writing about that. And I took that knowledge with me uh, down south as I made the photographs and was particularly interested in what women were doing. Thank goodness I kept the negatives all these years. You know how hard that is. And uh, so when people saw them, they were in the New York Times. They were published there. I forget under the name what it was under. Under my name, I used the name Doy Gordon, D-O-Y Gordon, uh, and uh, tumultuous or something, 1960s. But they, you, they did a huge spread of the photographs, and ever since then, I've been got contacted by museums and other folks about the photos. We uh, presented uh, during Black History Month uh, in New York this past February, I guess it was, wasn't it, Jane? Yeah. Yep, uh, these photographs, favorite. and then in trying to explain to students. This is a world that used to exist and hadn't been so long ago, and we were actually witnesses to it. And uh, that I'll tell you one funny thing from that, from that exhibit, Mike, and I don't know if you would know this or not from your knowledge, but I made a lot of photographs, and several pictures I made showed a, a young Black boy, he, I guess 12 or 11 years old, and he's riding a bicycle. And on the handlebars with his leg hanging over the bike is another boy, a little white boy. And they're both smiling and they're both enjoying themselves. Well, you know, because we're such radicals, we say, ah, you don't want to see that. That's, that's not, you know, that's not really the way the South works. So I put the pictures on the wall, you know, the professors and the... the well, they selected them. I know they it's selected like them. They picked that one out. Where was the exhibit? Was it the Schomburg by any chance? No, no, it was at, it was at Marist College up in, okay. uh, in New York State. Well, it's a long story about it, but the thing was that that's what they wanted. That was the picture that interested them more than all my police pictures and all that. And so I said, "What? Why? Why is that? Aren't you interested in this? We like connection. We like emotional connection. And I'm, you know, you talk about young people and my disconnect from young people. It was a, I was shocked by it that they would choose what I would think of as being a very sentimental image." as one that they really wanted, they cared about. And it's, it, was a, it was a wonderful moment to, to see that happening. Because otherwise, I'd be sitting there lecturing about, well, here are the police, and there are these guys, and there's this stuff, which is the kind of thing you see on the newsreels all the time, I guess. Right? We're going to run out of time on this segment. I'm going to have you back. But I would like each of you to maybe give 30 seconds or a minute of advice to people of any age about going forward making the world a better place while we still can. Jane can do that, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I guess being put on the spot on spur of the moment, um, I'd have two, two pieces of advice. And one is to stay engaged at the local level. That is, make your community better. And 
work with other people in the community. You know, I'm a great believer in the SNCC philosophy of community organizing. And uh, that was where I got my, you know, my grounding in Mississippi and in that and in Freedom Summer. So that local organizing is critical. And to not just be focused on national issues, although national and international issues are, are vitally important, but to improve your community itself. That is address, whether it's building a dog park or, you know, making beautiful parks that make people's quality of life better or working with a local food system or whatever. Um, stay engaged at the local level. I like that. Now, Dee, do you have anything to add to that or is that? Well, that I, I, I can never, I can never do what Jane does, but I will say one thing that I believe that, that, that if you are careful about ideologies, that is to say, you don't adopt them wholeheartedly and that's not the way you live your life, but that you try to approach issues, you know, honestly and thoughtfully without getting caught into a dogma that I think that your life is a lot better in terms of and I'm even down to your friendships because I think those dogmas sometimes leave out a tremendous amount of what humanity is all about. Having said that, they certainly can become a guidepost to where you want to go, a North Star. And we're never going to quite get there. Actually, none of us get out of here alive. So we do the best we can while we're here. But that guidepost is critically important, too. Well, I'm coming down there. So uh, I, you let me know when you're draining that pool because I'm coming before you do it. Uh, no, we don't, we don't we drain it all year. <laughs> Leave it. So you can you can get in the sauna or in the Oforo soaking tub, and then you can get in the pool. We have them. People are breaking the ice and yeah. jump in the pool. Hey, do you uh, do either of you want to give out a, an email where people could contact you? Look, if you look up CarbondalePoolHouse.com, that's our own website there, and you'll see a movie about us on there too. CarbondalePoolHouse.com. Yeah. Okay. Well, this has been good. And as you both know, we had quite a bit of technical problems at the beginning. So hopefully I don't talk to you again, like tonight or tomorrow when I figure it all out, but we'll see how it went. You've been listening to Live from the Heartland. You might still hear more. You might be looking at it. That's on youtube.com slash heartlandmedia slash videos. Uh, It was great talking with Jane Adams and Dee Gordon. And I'll see you both in the not too far off. Good. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Work.
Hey, hey, we're back. We're back with more live from the heartland on WLUW 88.7. And I'm really happy to bring on someone who many of you who listen to this show already know. Uh, we go way back to working in Uptown together with Joint Community Union and then Rising Up Angry, the one, the only Bob Lawson. And he is in Chicago where he is now living. And uh, I asked Bob to come on. Uh, I asked him regularly for labor information to come on and give us a labor report. So uh, let's get going. Good morning to you, Bob. Hey, um, good morning. How are you doing over there in Chicago? <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's a beautiful day. So it's been a, a nice week so far. Uh, that's great. Well, you know, one of the things that I saw in the news was uh, we've been talking regularly on this show about the Starbucks uh, unionization campaigns going on around the country. Uh, and suddenly I became aware that uh, two other coffee outfits, one Collectivo, which operates in Wisconsin and Chicago, uh, they've, they've been organizing and they also the workers at Intelligentsia. Why don't you fill us in on the coffee organizing union campaigns? Well, um, yeah, thanks. There's, there's actually been uh, quite a bit of uh, organizing in the service sector, but in coffee in particular, um, a lot of it sparked by the uh, original Starbucks campaign and in, in, uh, started in Buffalo, uh, which was actually started, uh, they organized a couple of other coffee chains in Buffalo before that. So, um, and so, yeah, you're right last week that uh, actually there was a couple of union victories in Chicago that, you know, as you mentioned, uh, the Collectivo campaign won, they won their campaign and also at uh, Howard Brown. Uh, the nurses just organized with the Illinois Nurses Association. Oh, um, good! I didn't know that. Yeah, so that that that's uh, some good news. The uh, the update sort of on the Starbucks campaign uh, is mixed news that uh, Starbucks workers are continuing to unionize. Uh, they're facing like pro one of the most unprecedented anti-union campaigns in the country. Uh, going on right now. Um, but like just yesterday in, in, in Carbondale, Illinois, the workers uh, won their campaign there, as well as in a couple other cities around the country. But at the same time that uh, Starbucks has just uh, really upped the ante, they've uh, uh, hired, you know, they hired Littler Mendelssohn, which is one of the 
biggest and longest uh, law firms that just does union busting, uh, union avoidance firm. And they've uh, fired over 70 of the leaders of the Starbucks workers campaigns around the country um, that what they did is they uh, implemented a wage and benefit increase for all the non-union workers and said the union workers couldn't get it. Um, all of this is uh, blatantly illegal, um, but they continued to do it because the strategy of the anti-union campaigns is to outweigh uh, the workers uh, that the National Labor Relations Board has filed uh, several, uh, several is an understatement of charges against Starbucks for what they're doing. Um, but um, it is, uh, you know, continues to go on. And what it hopes is that it'll demoralize the workers, outlast the uh, National Labor Relations Board, which is understaffed, and finally get to probably the Supreme Court uh, to uh, throw out the right of workers to organize in some kind of a way. That's kind of an exaggeration, but that's an undermining. But for example, uh, Starbucks just hired a new person. I forget what the uh, technical title of the job is, but she's a, a former CIA operative and worked for the Pinkerton Agency, which is a historically, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Uh, notorious anti-union campaign from the 30s on. Uh, but in any case, the workers are fighting back. And that um, just, uh, I think last week, a few days ago, uh, the Woodlawn, at the Woodlawn store, one of the worker leaders of that campaign, when they won their election, has just been fired by Starbucks. So the uh, Workers United is uh, urging people to call the district manager, uh, complain about it. Um, over the Labor Day weekend is that the Starbucks Workers United is going to be having a series of actions around the country, including in Chicago and Illinois, uh, where they ask supporters uh, to go into the stores uh, and they're called sip-ins uh, and support the workers, etc. So if people are supportive of that campaign, I'd really uh, uh, encourage them to get in touch with Starbucks Workers United um, and and go and show that support. But um, anyway, that's sort of a, a long-winded update on, on what's going on in the coffee workers. I'm sure there's a bunch of other coffee workers uh, organizing around the country that I don't know about because this is, people are just sick of it and young people are, are standing up and, and fighting to win the, their campaigns. You know, one of the things I was going to ask you was about, uh, you know, uh, what kind of opposition that unions are facing around the country. And uh, some of that you addressed that there are, uh, that Starbucks has hired someone, you know, people to really help them in their anti-union campaign. And uh, I noticed that in the Collectivo uh, report, uh, which I read somewhere, uh, talk about uh, Collectivo really had an expensive, vindictive, uh, year-long campaign to, uh, to fight the union. And uh, how broad spread are these efforts? And on the other side of that, Collectivo workers appeared to go with the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Union because it's a stronger and a bigger union. Any thoughts on any of that? Uh, well, that it's a, the uh, anti-union uh, campaign playbook is uh, it's old. Um, it, it's been evolving a little bit, but uh, it is a uh, the majority, the overwhelming majority, I believe over 80% probably of private sector work, uh, employers hire uh, union avoidance firms uh, to help fight the campaign. Um, and they their strategy is to delay 
uh, by filing uh, frivolous objections to union elections, uh, and then even if the union wins the election, uh, by filing, uh, by refusing to negotiate um, and using that, uh, and then they go after workers um, and demoralize them, fire them, or whatever. So most private sector workers, wherever they are, uh, face this kind of campaign. One of the things that's uh, been interesting about the uh, the these new campaigns that are developing is because the workers who've won their campaigns have been through it, they've been briefing the uh, people of what to expect in the ongoing campaigns. They're, you know, that's one role that social media plays. But even, you know, like uh, all of these, you know, the Collectivo, Starbucks, um, like Trader Joe's, now they just won in, in, uh, in Massachusetts and other places, all these progressive, even REI, which is a, a quote unquote co-op, yeah, of, uh, hire the same firms, go through the same uh, strategy, and it's been remarkably successful um, in destroying the labor movement. And so that's the question is, uh, given the new aggressiveness of the workers in organizing and a, a very good general counsel at the National Labor Relations Board, is it, this going to be able to hold and, and, and turn the tide? But it's going to take a, a huge movement. Uh, and it can't just be left to the workers on their own. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, the anti-union uh, workers. Uh, uh, let me ask you a follow-up question to that. Uh, some of the organizers uh, of these uh, in the service sector are people who went off to college and got good degrees and then decided to go organize. Not unlike when back in the day, there were people who left, uh, who were involved in the movement and went into factories to organize and that kind of thing. But your take on the new wave of organizers that seems to be on the scene around the country? Um, well, I think it's great. Um, I think uh, I, my guess, and I don't know, I don't have any uh, factual information that that thing, the, um, the salting is what you're talking about, or people who decide to go in for political reasons is probably a little exaggerated um, because what's going on is that uh, given what's happened in the country and the lack of good paying jobs, etc., that many people who go to college, the best job they can get is at uh, Amazon or at a Starbucks or at right. Trader Joe's, um, and they have huge amounts of college debt already. Um, and so that's they're not there to organize. They're there to you know build a life. Um, and the fact that they maybe some of them have been politicized, but there's a whole lot of, uh, you know, immigrant workers and, uh, you know, people who have been a long time. If you look at uh, the Amazon uh, union that won in New York, uh, many of the people who are key to organizing that were immigrants uh, from other countries that this was the best job they could get. Uh, and they brought skills to the job that they used for organizing, much in the same way uh, that in the earlier periods, uh, organizing the Justice for Janitors campaigns, a number of those organizers were from Central American countries that had to escape uh, Central America uh, because of political persecution. They brought those skills here, um, not specifically to go in and organize janitors, but because that was where um, they got the job and then they demanded justice. Uh, what's your take on the, the kind of, I mean, I got into a discussion yesterday with someone who's uh, has a relative who's active uh, 
with an organization that helps the homeless and, you know, clearly a progressive, but was trying to stop uh, a union of the workers who were, who were working. So you have that same situation with Collectivo, maybe Starbucks, you know, they're kind of Collectivo claimed to be a progressive place. So you have these owners who are certainly liberal, probably donate to the Democratic Party, but are anti-union. Right. I mean, the, it's been a, a problem for a long time is that, uh, you know, you can be liberal on kind of social issues, uh, but on class issues, uh, it's issues, a problem. Yeah. Uh, you know, and one of the other things I, uh, I kind of like to bring up about the uh, new wave of organizing is that, and the anti-union stuff, because it goes together, is that because it's been so hard to organize private sector employers, particularly in small shops, that some of the interesting stuff that unions have been doing have been using the, the political and legal process as a way of bettering workers' lives. And one, one that just played out really amazingly this week was in New York, where uh, Chipotle had to uh, pay $20 million in back pay to workers um, because they violated the workers' scheduling law and the uh, uh, health care law. And the way this happened was that uh, SEIU Local 32BJ helped get those laws passed in the New York City Council that said people had to have advance notice of their schedules and there had to be paid uh, sick leave. And that Chipotle was uh, routinely uh, violating that. So 32BJ built the case uh, and took it to the city, and the city then implemented a suit to, um, you know, win these workers a, a whole bunch of back pay, and it shows part of the power of unions in the political process. There's actually a kind of a not not nearly as dramatic uh, thing happening in Illinois right now, is that there's a, a potential constitutional amendment. Uh, that just came out of the legislature. I think it's what's it called the Illinois right to collective bargaining, which would make it a, a, con a constitutional right for public sector workers to collectively bargain. Now they have a legal right, but this would put it in the constitution. And it also outlaws uh, ever passing a right to work law in Illinois. So um, that's another uh, you know thing that unions are doing creatively. And I don't know how we are on time, but in California, the fast food workers have a, a potential law. I'm not sure whether it's going to pass, but what it would do would be to create a statewide uh, council of fast food workers who would bargain statewide uh, with large fast food employers on wages, et cetera. Uh, and this would be mandated by law. Now, whether it's going to pass or not, it's in the legislature. Um, it would be a, a tremendous step forward if that passes. Bob Lawson, let's talk a little bit about some uh, labor losses. Uh, you, you were involved a little bit in some of the stuff with uh, United Auto Workers in the South. Also, the Amazon uh, investment, I believe Alabama did not win the election. Any take on our and prospects for uh, labor unions and going forward in, this, in the, those industries and in the South? Um, I, you know, that I think that there's going to be uh, a huge wave of attempts at Amazon organizing uh, around the country um, that how successful it's going to be. It, it's, uh, you know, they're going to face tremendous opposition. Uh, the amount of dedication and discipline that the people in New York that won that campaign uh, is is like uh 
amazing what they had to go through. So whether they win or not, I don't know. And I'm not sure, you know, the UAW has gone through a bunch of changes uh, based on the amount of corruption that was uncovered in the union and what their new strategy is going to be. Um, I'm not sure, but I think, you know, the uh, Starbucks workers and some of the other um, uh, retail or service workers are winning in the South in places in the South. So I think, you know, uh, if as long as people see that there's a chance to succeed, that there's a chance to do it. The political climate will be much more difficult, but if the national climate is showing success and people's lives are improving through the union, I think it'll be easier to organize. But a lot of it depends, A, is what are the resources that the existing unions and others will put into these organizing campaigns? They're not cheap. They're not, uh, you know, they're not one-offs. Um, and B is then uh, the ability of that those organizations to find organizers and to uh, dig in for the long term, particularly in these big campaigns in the South. Uh, let's let's do a little shift to some. Uh, maybe you could share. There's some unions that are not so good. Uh, I'm thinking about the the so-called uh, union, the Friends of the uh, of the police or the Eternal Order Police in Chicago, uh, where their head guy Katanzara is supporting Darren Bailey, the Republican gun-toting anti-abortion candidate on the Republican side for governor. Um, you know, uh, what's the deal? We have a police department that's over half non-white, uh, a third women, and we still have a, a so-called union, uh, you know, <laughs> being on the wrong side. And there may be others. Yeah, the uh, um, actually the uh, um, Border Patrol uh, Union, which is controlled by a, a really strong right winger, uh, is uh, moving to get out of the American Federation of Government Employees. I think it's a, a, a divorce that's probably uh, welcomed on both sides. I'm not sure, um, but partly because they're so uh, right wing that I think it's a movement uh, in law enforcement. There's a, as um, you probably know, that there's a, a major movement in law enforcement on consolidating kind of right-wing uh, politics uh, among sheriffs, among you know police officers, et cetera. And we know that the right, even the Proud Boys have uh, tentacles into organizing in, the, in, the, um, in law enforcement. So I suspect um, but I don't know about the internal dynamics because there is an internal dynamics is that um, most of the union apparatus uh, in these, uh, as you're calling them, the so-called bad unions is, is uh, been a conscious strategy of the right to control it um, and that the rest of the people may not agree with it, but it's not worth the fight at this point. Uh, whether that'll change or not, I don't know. Um, you know, some people who are our age may remember that, you know, in the Chicago Police Department, there was, uh, I believe it was the Black Police Officers Association um, that when the uh, Fred Hampton stuff and other stuff was going on, spoke out uh, against the police practices. Um, and so there may be that kind of uh, uh, movement within the various law enforcement agencies, but I don't know about it. Um, the, the last thing I want to ask you if I could find it here, um, 
was I've been, I saw an article way back in uh, Jacobin, a socialist journal uh, by Matt Huber. And he has a new book, uh, Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet. And let me just read you a quote from that. Um, he basically says, says uh, awareness will not save us from climate disasters. Spreading knowledge and awareness of the climate crisis isn't enough. There's no hope for the planet without climate policies that address the material interests of workers. And I think what caught my attention was um, in order, you know, like we're talking about Starbucks on one hand, but what about the old, more traditional unions and unions that were basically all white? Uh, what's your sense of the future on union organizing on the broader scale? Um, well, I think that um, there's a, a, a huge potential um, in uh, like solar energy and in alternative energies uh, that unions could organize those and they would be good paying jobs. I think uh, what's happened in the past uh, for a couple of reasons, partly it's political, is that the more traditional building trades unions or the construction workers unions uh, have been uh, more focused on a bird in the hand and will take you know a small number of pipeline jobs versus a abstract promise of solar industry jobs. And I think that what needs to happen is a part of this transition is that there needs to be uh, real policies that guarantee that this stuff happens and not that it's a promise, not that it's a vague promise. I think that'll make it a lot easier for um, uh, union leadership and union members to see the transition is not going to mean their life is being destroyed. Um, and that I remember way back a long time ago, uh, the sheet metal workers were one of the biggest pushers of solar energy in the country. Um, and that they understood that the future was going to be, you know, it could be both good for their union, but it could also be good public policy. So I think that a, since the transition to solar, et cetera, is good public policy, that's a given, that how does it become palatable to some of the more conservative unions? And B, is what is the uh, political apparatus that guarantees that the workers don't suffer in this transition? Uh, that's good. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your uh, knowledge or your perceptions around what's going on. And I'll look forward to seeing you in the neighborhoods. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Bye. Um, we want to thank everybody who's tuned in today uh, to the Live from the Heartland show, wherever you may get it. And once again, uh, we are, uh, you know, our home base is uh, WLUW 88.7. That's Loyola University. Uh, we also, you can also get it streamed and live uh, on Saturdays, not live, but on air on Saturdays, on Tuesdays and Fridays, 9 to 10 on WLUW.org or WLUW 88.7. And we do appear on Can TV. We're a podcast on Spotify uh, and Google Podcasts. And you can always get us and you can get a lot of our other shows, many, many, many uh, at youtube.com slash Heartland Media. Um, Next week, we are going to have Clem Balanoff coming back on. You know, he's a union organizer and works on elections. Uh, and he, I got a message from him that the climate is changing. Let's talk again. So I said, OK, let's come on back. Uh, I want to mention two of uh, two other progressive radio shows. Um, our friend Mike Klonsky has one on 
Lumpen Radio. I believe it's on Fridays sometime. That's uh, WLPN 105.5. And I think it's lumpenradio.com. And also always uh, for a long time on KOOP, Rag Radio with Thorn Dryer. It's on at two o'clock uh, Central Time um, on Fridays. So uh, those are good things. Um, you have been listening to the Live from the Heartland show. I want to thank uh, all the people that uh, make this show possible. Emilio Davis, Lynn Orman Weiss, Imani Warren, Katie Hogan, uh, and of course our home base, uh, WLUW. Um, you know, there's a lot of good things out there in the world. There's a lot of things that need your attention and support. Pay attention, read the news, share information, uh, and organize. Talk to your friends, to your neighbors. Uh, encourage them to join up in the do good in the world kind of a deal. Okay, see you next week. Thanks a lot for tuning in. This is Michael James in El Paso here for Bobby Bird's memorial, the great border poet Bobby Bird, um, uh, also a publisher and the border bard. Um, I, I'm really honored to have met him over the last 20 years and you know talked to him, seen him. Um, he's quite a guy, and um, that, that's why I came to El Paso. So I'll be back in Chicago in a few days. I'll see you all one way or another. Over and out. Power to the people. Don't want to hear about suffering at all. Joshua said, one man have too many. Why do many have too little? Socialism don't stand for that, don't stand for that at all. Socialism is love.